Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Causes or Cures. I'm Dr. Eeks, your host. Thanks so much for joining in today. So if you listen to Causes or Cures, if you're a regular, so to speak, a few weeks ago, you'll know that I had a researcher from Penn State University on the podcast talk about his work on COVID-19 viral spillover into white-tailed deer from humans. This week, my guest is going to talk about a highly divergent strand that he and his team discovered in white-tailed deer in Canada and potentially the first identified case of deer-to-human transmission. Interesting, right? (laughs) My guest is Dr. Bradley Pickering. He is the head of the Special Pathogens Unit at the National Center for Foreign Animal Disease for the Government of Canada, based in Winnipeg. And in the podcast, he will tell you a little bit more about what he does. In this episode, he will discuss COVID-19 viral spillover into animals, the samples that they took from white-tailed deer, the viral mutations they discovered in those deer samples. Then he will talk about the potential first case of deer to human transmission and also vaccine effectiveness against the deer samples. Do the vaccines work against them or don't they? And then finally, what this type of spillover and potential spillback could mean for how we manage the COVID-19 pandemic going forward. All right, guys, so give me a second here while I connect to Dr. Pickering. To start, do you mind just giving a brief overview of who you are and the type of work you do before we jump into the podcast questions? Sure, yeah, no, that sounds good. Um, Okay, so yeah, my name's Brad Pickering, and I'm the head of the Special Pathogens Unit at the National Center for Foreign Animal Disease. Uh, That's with the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. Uh, This is in uh, Canada. And the program itself essentially works with uh, merging and re-emerging zoonotic diseases. Uh, So these uh, are focused on the animal side, so the the veterinary aspect of uh, the disease. And um, we look at events where uh, you know you have these high consequence pathogens that will jump from animals to people so most of the work that we do is in a high containment uh, space and so this would be kind of your uh, biocontainment uh, bsl3 or bsl4 uh, so these would be uh, you know could be things like ebola to sars-cov-2 uh, nipah virus uh, rift valley fever virus all these kind of um, high consequence agents yeah oh, very very cool timely stuff for sure. (laughs) Um, So we're going to talk about your paper, um, highly divergent white-tailed deer SARS-CoV-2 with potential deer to human transmission, which is the really interesting part. But before we do that, can you discuss what we know so far about other species um, COVID can infect the COVID virus? Sure. Yeah. So SARS-CoV-2 is a zoonotic disease disease and so essentially you know it it comes from animals uh can transmit to people uh, at least uh you know that's one of the main <laughs> the main working theories and and so there's a number of different animals that can actually uh be infected so obviously white-tailed deer uh white-tailed deer have been um one of these 
these big ones uh, fairly recently to be shown. So in service, but there's a number of different ones that can also be infected and there's different, I guess, susceptibility in these animals. So some, some have lower susceptibility and some are, are much higher. So things like felids, right? So cats and, and uh, domestic cats we've seen as, as being pretty susceptible to SARS-CoV-2. And we've also seen those reports in zoos, things like tigers and, and, uh, and lions and these type of things. Mustelids uh, are, are susceptible. So these are um, things like mink. And so there's been uh, certainly a lot of, uh, uh, initially in the outbreak, so this was in Europe, there was a lot of mink outbreaks um, in Denmark and the Netherlands. And then we also saw that here in Canada, uh, as well as the United States uh, and, uh, and other areas around the world. And they're highly susceptible and they transmit the virus uh, quite well. Um, birds, uh, avian, are not so, so tr uh, at least based on the evidence we have from the original SARS coronavirus 2 strain. Uh, it doesn't look like they're too susceptible, but there's some recent scientific evidence suggesting that maybe the, the new variants might pose more risk. They might might have some susceptibility, at least in some cell culture work that was done that suggesting maybe they they might be able to, but uh, this hasn't really been shown yet. Um, raccoon dogs, this was kind of shown early on through some experimental uh, work that uh, they'd be oh. infected. World Flying foxes, these, these old world fruit bats, uh, that as well. So, I mean, the list kind of keeps going on and on. There's, you know, there's some... Um, yeah, I guess primates, things like that. Yeah, so it, it just uh, kind of keeps going and going. Uh, it seems to be a fairly, fairly good at infecting different animal species. Hmm. Now, so does the ability to infect other species imply that these species, these animals have a similar receptor for SARS-CoV-2 like we have? Yeah, so I think you're right. I mean, there's, there's certain homology with this ACE2 receptor. So that's the primary uh, receptor that's sort of been one of the key hallmarks for identifying those species that might be susceptible. So uh, when you when you look at say felids, it's 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 a pretty high percentage similarity to that of humans. And so it's not the be all end all of saying, well, that has a high ACE2 receptor, so it must be uh, you know must get infected. But certainly there there is a correlation. So a lot of these have a, a relatively high uh, uh, similarity to that of that of people. Yeah, I, it's interesting. I haven't heard. Uh... A lot of veterinarians taking care of sick cats with COVID. I mean, I, no. heard, I definitely heard the zoo, the zoos for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. My dad's a yeah. veterinarian, so I was just thinking, like, has he mentioned that? <laughs> yeah. Well, so so there. So most of the time, I, I think. I mean, some of the cats will be a little bit more lethargic, and and they're not overly sick. Okay. Um, but you can detect virus from them, and so this is something that they actually found early on in the in the in the pandemic. Right. Um, they first looked at dogs. Uh, which are relatively low in susceptibility, uh, but then cats seem to be more, and they seem to potentially transmit. So there's more work looking now, actually, to see like is you know is there any zoonosis coming from the cats? I mean, there hasn't really been shown uh, cats to people. Generally speaking, it's you know it's from a COVID household or you know the owner uh, is has COVID, and and usually the animals cat. will test positive. So there's there's certain case studies that were done to kind of test those animals in known conditions where they say, okay, these, you know, these, these people have it, they have pets, let's check to see. Otherwise okay. you probably wouldn't have that data, but uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, they all, generally they all recover and they're fine. So there's no really treatment required for them, but, uh, but it's interesting to, to see that they're able to become infected. Oh no, absolutely. Um, 
So as a follow-up to my question before, the cat question, uh, a line from your paper is that host cell receptor tropism has expanded over time, increasing concern about spillover into animals. Can you explain that to us in as simple language as you can? Sure, yeah. So it's it's this so the cell receptor is what's um important for entry of the virus to be able to uh replicate and and make more virus so that's basically how viruses work they they want to get in they want to make more virus and then they they want to go in and spread and and make more virus so uh as we see you know the the tropism it's kind of expanding you're, you're getting these this variation you're getting mutations that are occurring and it seems and what we've seen is you know we're, we're identifying more and more species that are becoming infected and uh we see this increase in transmissibility with omicron and 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 uh you know this the sub variants of omicron um and so exactly that so as as the the virus kind of changes, it's able to infect more species and and uh, and you're getting this potential uh, spill spillover into other other uh, potential species that maybe weren't susceptible before, maybe now are more susceptible. So it's kind of increasing that uh, that breadth of, of susceptible animals. Okay. Um, increasing susceptibility all around. Um, yeah. <laughs> you, you and your team, I said, you, I wrote down you guys, you can tell I'm from Northeast Pennsylvania, you guys. Um, <laughs> you, you and your team set up a surveillance program in Ontario, Canada, to better understand COVID prevalence in Ontario and in specifically the white-tailed deer. Can you talk about the samples you took from the deer and what you discovered there? Sure, yeah. So it, so this project is really a large collaborative project. And like you mentioned, this was uh, some a surveillance program uh, set up in Southwestern Ontario. And um, some of the other uh, uh, authors are, are deeply involved in the sampling and the, and the lead uh, senior author, uh, as well as another corresponding author uh, who kind of managed this. Um, they're really involved in, in procuring these samples and, and they did, uh, you know, some, some of these samples would be would be opportunistic so you have animals that are um basically from you know the, the road uh, <laughs> uh carcasses and things like that where they would come in but there's a lot of these samples actually come from uh, hunter harvested uh just because that's one way that we're able to get samples through chronic wasting disease surveillance um because it's it's it's, it's hard to get samples in uh, other respects so this would be nasal swabs and this would be um retropharyngeal lymph nodes which um are kind of the the two easy samples, and because we look for chronic wasting disease in these uh, retropharyngeal lymph nodes, which are kind of at the back of your, the throat, essentially uh, in the base of the neck, uh, for these animals, they're able to um, um, use those as a target to to look for virus. And so, typically, this is like a PCR uh, test to see if there's any virus present. Um, and so, you know, we screened a number of these. Um, as, as a group. And, uh, this was, uh, I think that if I remembering, you know, it was basically 17 samples or so that we were able to come up positive about 300. Um, and again, when you're sampling these type of things, you don't have the, you can't, you can't just pick the samples you want. These are kind of opportunistic. So in a, in a way they're random, but they're sort of in a, in a region, sure. um, that we're able to find. Right. But it, but it was interesting that we actually found a fair amount. Um, yeah. but as a paper, you know, alludes to it's, it, the, the divergence is really the interesting part. I think that what we what we realized once once we kind of analyzed this and saw what the sequence was. 
Right, which I think is a perfect lead way to my next question. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, people understand that viruses mutate inside host. As simple as you can, can you describe the mutations of the Ontario WTD, I guess that's the white, white-tailed deer, SARS-CoV-2, um, and any, any noticeable differences and why that matters? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So um, as I was alluding to, um, I think what's interesting about this virus is that there's so many changes. Um, so when we think of Omicron, um, you know, it had uh, a large number of mutations and that's, you know, thought to have helped with the uh, changes in the spike protein, changes to the transmissibility. And I think there is, you know, 59 mutations or so um, with about 37 of these in the spike protein. The spike protein is what's uh, important for receptor binding and getting into the cell and those things. Um, and so we, we saw uh, a large number, like 76 in this uh, changes. So 76 mutations to the sequence in this case. And so they were kind of throughout the genome and there's a number of areas, but um, what's, I think we're still, we're still working through and trying to analyze and, and see what all of these mutations mean, like trying to characterize, okay, how does this map to others? And if we're looking at the different type of proteins that are part of the virus to make it up, they all have different roles. And so uh, there's a lot of post work that we're still, that we're still doing on this, but there are a number of those in the spike protein that seem to be conserved with these deer sequences. And you can see some, some potential closely related evolution with some mink. Um, but I think what the really interesting thing is that all of the changes in the sequence. And so it's, you know, it's um, sampled in the fall of 2021 and we didn't see anything that was close in terms of this viral, this viral genome to about a year earlier. Um, and this was kind of in the US, right? So this is in Michigan. So the, the closest was, you know, a different area, probably just also because of sampling. We didn't have sampling points, but it was changed so much. And there was no, and there was a lot of sampling that was going on in, in you know, in, in Ontario and the rest of Canada. We didn't see this kind of pop up anywhere that it kind of lends to this idea that, it was introduced maybe sometime in the fall or, or earlier in uh, 2020, somewhere, somehow, we don't know how it got in. And then it kind of manifested and, and stabilized potentially in the wildlife, uh, at least in deer or maybe other animals as well. And it, and it ended up, uh, you know, accumulating these changes, kind of adapting uh, potentially to the host over this time. And, and we find that year later, we go, oh, wow, there's a, there's a lot of changes in this, uh, you know, in the white-tailed deer. Yeah. Um, and it just kind of gives you that idea that, well, maybe it's not just this immediate introduction from people goes into animals and it's gone. This is kind of giving you the idea that, well, more long-term surveillance is needed to see, is this continuing to progress? And is are we going to still find this in mm. deer? And is this now, you know, could this develop into a reservoir? And mm. that's sort of the concern because then you could have the you know, potential spillback right. in the future. Uh, and, and this is now like, there's a lot of deer in North America. <laughs> <laughs> there are. <laughs> so, so that wouldn't, you know, that, you can't just, well, let's get rid of the deer. So um, no. I think it's something that's good to, to know about and to be aware of. And so we can better understand and prepare for um, sure. Now, as you, you just mentioned, there can be spillover both ways here um, from, from, from the deer to the humans or the humans to the deer. Um, now, you also identified a human-derived sequence 
from Ontario that was highly similar to the, the white-tailed deer sample. And your paper identifies two potential scenarios for the evolution of this, uh, of, of this human-derived sequence, supposedly. Um, can, can you explain that as simple as you can and, and the potential implications of that? Is this evidence for deer to human transmission in general? Right. Yeah. No, that's a that's a great question. So as you mentioned, we did we did find a sequence. Um, and so one of the authors had a had a keen eye and found this in the in the public health database. Um, and it, it popped out because, you know, of I think at the time about seven million sequences or so it was basically, you know, the these white tailed deer clustered with this one um, genome sequence uh, from a from a patient. So it was interesting to say, okay, well, how come they're so close? There's no other points, anything like that. So it, there's no direct evidence that we can, that we have to say, okay, well, this, you know, directly correlates to a, an actual transmission, but it, it's as close as you can be with, you know, no time points, no data points, there was sampling that's going on. So it gives you the, the thought that, you know, there's, there's a potential transmission here. Um, and so the model that we're thinking about, and, and I think is, is a good one in terms of, you know, the possibility is that at some point early on um, in 2020, likely, there was um, some probably people had given it, uh, it looks like to maybe mink. So what happens is when we look at the sequence of this, of this white-tailed deer, there's some similarities when it, it kind of clusters to this, uh, some data that came from mink. So there seems to be there's some mink involved probably in the evolution of this virus um so essentially there's some works of whether it went to to mink back to people or mink and then you know it it looks like at least from this um sequence went into and in, went in around the fall of, of 2020 because that's our last data point and the two scenarios is one going into white-tailed deer you know from people and kind of manifesting and then going back to people okay. or we could also have the second scenario of it either being white-tailed deer or it could be mink or it could be some other wildlife that is out there that is infected uh, and you know continuing to evolve and then it were to infect white-tailed deer and also potentially people independently right so there's the two of transmission from deer to people and then there's the second being this wildlife potentially transmitting to people and deer so Right. Overall, in both scenarios, like scenario one, and scenario two, it lends to the idea that there is a potential development of a reservoir happening. I mean, we don't have the evidence to say that it is. This is more of a long term analysis that needs to happen. But and, and there's a lot of work going on in the U.S. Uh, as well, looking at a lot of the white tailed deer and all this. So there's really good work going on. Um, and the implications really are, you know, is this. Is this a potential that it's going to be hanging out wildlife in whether it's a deer or some other wildlife species? So I think that's something that we need to continue to look at and, and, uh, and identify so that we're better prepared. So that's, that's really, the, I think, the biggest impact is we're seeing this highly divergent species, which may be less infectious, but maybe, you know, in the future, there's changes and it might spill back in, probably at a low frequency, but there's still that potential, right? So it's another source, basically, outside of the right. human population, right. which is really driving the pandemic, right? It's a human driven pandemic, but it gives you this other outlet of saying, well, now there's another population potentially. Right, right. I was wondering just uh, that 
the patient that had the, the sequence similar to the white-tailed deer, did you guys, was it just a data point? Were you able to get any other information about, you know, that patient, the type of work they did or anything? Right. Yeah, no, it, it's basically a data point. Um, okay. Any kind, anytime you kind of do this, you have to get consent and the rest of it. So sure. we weren't yeah. able to, to, to really have any other information on this, but uh, yeah, uh, that would, that would be interesting for sure. Um, but yeah, at this point, it's sort of a cluster of, of sequences that we're able to kind of work with. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's really, it's scary, but interesting at the same time. Um, yeah. So with multiple viral hosts, there's a concern about vaccine effectiveness. I mean, there's a concern about that anyways with, with humans and how, you know, how the, the virus mutates. Um, did your study look into this at all? Or can you make any comment on how this could affect um, a vaccine campaign against a disease like this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a great question because that's always a concern of, um, you know, vaccine effectiveness and evolution of the virus and, and how that works. And so, so again, there's um, some good collaborators that worked on this uh, and to try to get a, you know, an answer really quickly. Um, they had generated uh, basically what's, it's called a pseudotype, right? So a pseudo just kind of is a replacement. So they, they looked at the different um, spike proteins and they looked at the different uh, changes to these um, uh, Ontario white-tailed deer uh, virus and compared in terms of binding to see how do they compare to um, uh, previous strains and how does it compare to uh, somebody that would receive vaccine from two or three doses or if they didn't at all and those kind of things. And it looks like for, for these testing that we looked at, there really wasn't much difference between um, um, you know, the, the other strains. So Omicron seems to have, you know, um, vaccines less effective, but these white-tailed deer seem to be uh, similar to the uh, uh, previous sort of uh, ancestry type uh, viruses. So it looks like the vaccine is uh, is still good as far as we can tell uh, from our sort of preliminary study that we're we're looking at this right now for neutralization of the spike protein. Yeah. So so far, that's good news. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking like we can't really line up deer to get them vaccinated. Right. Um, I mean, like, what would, what could you possibly do? I mean, nothing for the, yeah. Year? I mean, I think, I think that's, that's a good question. And it's sort of different, right. When you're talking about a farmed species right. where you have them there and you can vaccinate and you can do these things when you've got wild animals um, that are free ranging, they've got a large range. They're able to move around. I think you end up with just, this is what it is. And just kind of being aware yeah. and, um, yeah, there's really, I think, I mean, Social you could look distancing. at vaccination, but that would be tough, right? Yeah, get some masks and put them on the deer. <laughs> um, yeah, no, um, it would be tough. Um, but I guess it's just maybe for people, like maybe you distance yourself from deer for a while or something. I don't know. Yeah, I think um, I think you'd have to have sort of really close, significant contact, um, you know, to be infected from the deer. I think if, you know, you're walking and you see the deer, I don't think that that would be a concern. Right. Uh, if you kind of have your normal distance, which generally that's the case because deer will usually leave. Now, I guess if, you know, they want to get fed or something, that's a different scenario. But, right. um, you know, it's probably the same kind of thing with the person where if it's prolonged, uh, sustained contact with deer, then if they were infected, happened to be shedding at that time. There's a lot of things that you'd have to have kind of line up in order to, right. I think, have that, in you know, that, that spillover. But um, so generally speaking, I think it would be pretty low 
but uh, yeah. there's certainly instances where you know there is that potential if you if you're close enough for sure. Um, thanks so much, Dr. Pickering. This is very interesting and um, yeah, just really interesting stuff here. Like just the creation of a reservoir and what that means. So, in conclusion, how might your research influence public health policy going forward when it comes to managing COVID nineteen? Thanks. Yeah, I think. I think one of the important things coming out of this work is to to understand the idea uh, and maybe to kind of implement it more, the idea of one health. And that means not only just looking at public health, uh, but to look at, you know, the ecology of animals, to look at that tied into public health, to look at the environment, kind of take all these pieces together as a system and understand that, you know, we need to focus on the broader uh, range of all these things, as opposed to just kind of, you know, in being in a silo, looking at public health and thinking, well, we just worry about this and we don't need to worry about anything else because we're just going to focus on humans. But I think this work really accentuates the need to understand what's going on in, in, in wildlife and that SARS-CoV-2 spills over and it's spilled over a number of times and that, you know, it may not go away. So something that we think is no longer here, if it's a Delta or whatever else, we think, okay, that strain's gone. It may not be gone in wildlife and it might be you know changing and potentially going so it's a good lesson for us to understand that we need to kind of keep monitoring and understand what's going on so that we're prepared later and so this whole idea of one health has been going on for quite some time but to to really focus on that on the managing of COVID-19 I think will be a good component I think moving forward to to make sure we're prepared and to make sure that we're not surprised by you know some other type of uh, virus that might arise that we thought was gone, you know, a year or two ago. No, I totally agree. And I, I did, I mean, in public health school, I did my capstone project on uh, zoonotic infections and like the factors leading to emerging infectious diseases. So it was always like, well, it's like how humans interact with uh, their environment and the animals around us. Um, so, and that's, you know, that's how pandemics can start um, with if, you know, and some sort of virus or bacteria or whatever jumps from one species to the next. Um, so it's a one health and just keeping that in mind, being good stewards of, of our environment and the animals around us, I would think. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was great. Um, are you doing more research on this area or? We are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're going to continue to, to do some more surveillance. We're going to try to get more uh, samples if we can throughout the year, as opposed to just sort of in the opportunistic time in the fall. So hopefully we'll get some additional data points and kind of have more surveillance to kind of, you know, monitor the evolution and yeah. to see what's happening. Um, great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate uh, you, uh, you know, inviting me to come and chat. No, it was great. And you broke it down in a great way, you know, for a lot of people to understand it. So I do appreciate that. Um, cause I think that that's important. It's sometimes people will be like, I don't understand that. It's, it's too scientific. <laughs> so <laughs> that's great. Um, yeah, I appreciate you making it, um, uh, digestible for a wide, wide audience. Great. Awesome. Okay. Enjoy the rest of your day there. And, um, I'll be in touch via email. Okay, great. Thanks. You too. Uh, okay. yeah, I appreciate it. Absolutely. Right, Bye-bye. Okay. Bye for now. All right, guys, thanks so much for joining in and listening to the episode. Hopefully you found it interesting, learned something. You can always let me know what you thought. You can reach me through my website, bloomingwellness.com. Um, you could also read my blog there, read some of the books I've written, um, some of the jokes I've written. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You get It's like a little variety shop there at Blooming Wellness. 
Um, and thanks again for Dr. Pickering uh, for coming on and sharing his expertise with us. I think this is really interesting. And it's it's an area of the pandemic that we don't really talk about all that much, you know, this spillover and spill back type of thing. So I think it's good to keep it on our radar in terms of how we manage this pandemic going forward. All right, guys, I hope you subscribe, tell your friends, uh, share the episode. Word of mouth is great if you like it. If you don't, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do anything anyways, but you know, just throwing it out there as a suggestion. Okay, guys, hopefully I'll see you here next time. Bye-bye.